Thank you for listening to a Christ-centered message from Grace Community Church. We are committed to proclaiming the authority of God's Word without apology and trust that you will receive encouragement as we study today's passage together. Jude has been called the most neglected book of the New Testament. And if you think about it, I don't know how long you've been in church. I don't know when the last time was somewhere where someone went through the letter of Jude, but it doesn't receive a lot of attention. Uh, People are concerned with the Gospels, and we should be. Sermon on the Mount, and we should be. Revelation and what's going to happen in the end times, we should be. But this is a small little brief book that we intend to not overlook. This book was written by the half-brother of Jesus, and he wrote it, it's a timely letter, to encourage the early church to stand firm in grace against the reality of false teaching and false teachers. Now, we just sang the song, How Deep the Father's Love. And I don't remember, I don't know if you remember when you heard that song for the first time, but the first person I heard sing that song was Harrison Banda right here on this platform 10 years ago at least. And it was about six years ago I was with him in Zambia. One of the folks there in Zambia reached out this week like, Pastor, when are you coming back? Well, I want to get back as soon as possible, but it's been a long time now. And when we were there and we had the pastor's conference and the church leaders, and then it all came to an end, and before we flew back to the States, Harrison took us and his key guys that, are his, that were his helpers, and we went to a nature preserve. And we crossed this long bridge over water. He stopped, and he, and he told us, he said, look out there, what do you see? I'm like, I don't know, it's beautiful. There's water and Over here on this side is the nature preserve, and hopefully we're going to see some. He really wanted us to see lions, you know, and find lions. And we saw giraffes and a lot of other animals. We didn't see any lions that day. He said, what do you see in the water? And we're like, I don't know. It's just water. He's like, do you see the backs of the hippopotamuses? And as we look closer, they're their backs, and every now and then they would breach the surface for a little air, and they would go back under. And he said, there's danger everywhere in that water. And and we got into the preserve, and he drove us up next to the banks. He was like a parent in a toy store telling us, you know, don't go near the edge. You know, don't go near the edge. Why? Because if you slide, if that bank of the river gives way and you go down, there's danger right there, and I'm not going to be able to get you back from the mouth of a hippo. We listened to him. We, We kept our distance. We didn't just try to get as close as we could to the edge because there was danger there in the water. And it was everywhere. It wasn't wasn't that it wasn't there. It was there. We just couldn't see it. And it required someone who knew the danger and knew the area to tell us it's not just a possibility. It's a reality. And it's right there. The letter of Jude, it bears his name, Jude. He's the half-brother of Jesus. He's the full brother of James. There's a transformation that happened in Jude's life that is beyond natural. It's supernatural. He went from being a skeptic of Jesus Christ, his half-brother, to a servant. He actually uses a word, he calls himself a slave of Jesus Christ. He was willing to serve in a role behind the scenes and second to others who were greater than he was. Not many people can do that well. In Jude, we see a beautiful portrait of humility and faithfulness that it's only brought brought about by the gospel of Jesus Christ, loved ones. Now, we have experienced the destructive reality of terrorism. Just last month, we marked the 20th anniversary of 9-11, where the enemy didn't come in under a flag, an enemy flag. They didn't come in dressed in an enemy's uniform that could be identified. The threat of terrorism is they look just like us. They look just like our neighbors. They look just like people that we're used to seeing. We didn't see that there was a threat there. 
And so these type of individuals, terrorists, they take advantage of freedom. They come in under freedom and then they turn and use that freedom to accomplish great harm, to twist it, to turn it. When Peter writes his second letter, 2 Peter, and he's warning, and you see in the video to the series, like the coming storm, the, the warning, they're coming, and you need to be on guard. And Acts chapter 20, Paul, and with the Ephesian elders, he's warning them that these false teachers, these wolves will come in from outside of the church, and they will come in from up inside the church, and you need to be on guard, elders. You need to shepherd the flock of God, Peter would say. Jude is saying they're here. Peter was saying they're coming. Paul was saying they're coming. And Jude is saying they're here. It's time to stand in grace for what is right. Do you think the threats against the church have diminished in 2,000 years? There's an ebb and flow. Reformation, 500 years ago. There's always an ebb and flow, but there's times of heightened attack against the church. So the times are uncertain. Our news is filled with turmoil. But it's time for us, loved ones, to stand firm in grace. To contend for the faith, which is not the same as to contend for our preferences and opinions. Let's make that very clear. We don't contend for our traditions, but we will, and God helping us, enabling us by his spirit, contend for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. And I've said before, my responsibility as an under-shepherd, as a pastor, is simply to take the baton and hand it to the next generation well. And it, it, that's the church together doing this. This isn't just one, this isn't a spectator sport. This is the church family. This is the body together. That implies there has to be somebody there to receive the baton. That we are training up leaders, that we are training up those who are able to take the word of God and teach others also, as Paul said to Timothy. Right here locally and all the way over in Zambia or in India, wherever God may allow us to serve him. So if you're open in your Bibles there to Jude, this morning we're going to look at the first two verses. It's the introduction to this letter. And Jude writes, he says, and here's where we have the author's name right at the outset of the book, very customary, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James. Now here's the recipients. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. This is the word of God. Are you ready for this study? I'm ready for this study. I'm looking forward to what we're going to encounter. And I would encourage you, take some time over the next weeks and just read through the letter of Jude. It's pretty short. It's not the shortest letter in the New Testament, but it's pretty brief. You know, it's in my Bible, uh, page and a half. Your Bible might be a little smaller, might be a little longer. But read through, and as you're reading through, here's what I want you to do. I want you to pay attention to all of the references that Jude brings in. And in one brief letter, think of the ground that he covers. In one letter, one sermon, one message, and just pay attention to the names that he mentions. And you're going to be amazed. And it's going to help you be uh, kind of till up the fallow ground, break up that, that, that hard, stony ground of the heart and be ready to receive the message as we come from week to week. So how should Christians then gain clarity and confidence? How are we going to gain clarity and confidence from Jude's introduction? If we're clear on what he's saying, I believe it's going to give us confidence to stand firm in grace. Number one, let's pay attention, pay attention to Jude's example. This will help us gain clarity and confidence. Jude's example is one of faithfulness and humility. We find out this is the author, a very common, just the, at the outset, who's writing this letter, whereas our custom is you, you sign a letter and you put the recipient at the top 
and then you sign at the bottom from whoever or sincerely, and you sign your name. In the first century, it was customary to put the, who's this from, and then who is it to, who are the recipients, and what is the content, what is the reason for this letter, for this communication. Jude refers to himself as a servant of Jesus Christ, and we need to pay attention to this. This is no small designation. Now, Jude isn't here name-dropping, okay? He is not using his relation to Jesus as a power grab. Do you know who I am? Do you know who my brother is, you lowly people? That's not what he's doing. He doesn't begin with Jude, the brother of Jesus Christ. Pay attention, you lowlifes. That's not how he begins the letter. He says, Jude, and the word there is doulos, a slave of Jesus Christ. Now, Jude's name is a popular name. It experienced a rise, all right, in the Hebrew name, Judah. Okay, one of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, one of the 12 sons, Judah, lion of the tribe of Judah, the promise that's gonna come from uh, Judah's line, elevated over Reuben, his older brother, Popular name. Became even more popular for Jewish homes to name their sons Judas. Second century BC, Judas Maccabeus was a national hero. I'm sure if they would have had the ability to make flags, they would have had Judas everywhere, you know? Judas, 2020, 2024, 2022, BC, Judas against Antiochus Epiphanes. And it didn't end well, but the Jewish people valued that he attempted to gain freedom and liberty for Israel and for Israelites. So that was a popular name. You want to name, you know, in our country, name your kid George, you know, after George Washington, Benjamin, you know, Thomas. These, these names that are, are represented, live up to this name, son, you know. Judas, well... As popular as it was when Jesus was born, someone else named Judas turned that name into infamy where you would not want to name your son Judas. One of Jesus' disciples took that name into the dirt. And that's why in your Bible, it doesn't say Judas. It says Jude. Because even in the early church, they really didn't want to focus so much on Judas but yet this is a valuable person used by God in a great way. And although his name was tarnished by Judas Iscariot, this individual was a man of grace. He was a servant. When Jude says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, he's referring to himself in this way. And it can be understood from two perspectives that are important. When he says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, he's saying, I exist for his will. Whatever he wants, that's what I'm to do, the, the doulos, the slave. This designation for Jude determined, this is my mission. Whatever he wants me to do, that's my mission. I am given up my will to the will of another. This theme of servanthood is throughout the New Testament. Think about Think about the authors, and they're going to come up here, Romans 1.1, Paul, a servant of Jesus Christ. A slave is the word, doulos, of Jesus Christ. Philippians 1.1, Paul and Timothy, servants of Jesus Christ. Colossians 4.12, Epaphras, who is one of you, Paul writing, and he is a servant, a slave of Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 4.6, hey, Timothy, if you put these things before the brothers, you, Timothy, will be a good servant, a good slave of Jesus Christ, of Christ Jesus. Titus, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. James 1.1, 1, 1. James, a servant of God, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus. Do you hear how they're, they're putting them together in deity? 2 Peter 1, 1, Simon Peter, there it is at the beginning of the letter. Who's writing? Simon Peter. Oh, I have the keys to the church. That's who I am. You better listen to me. Is that what he says? No. Slave. 
an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now listen to this. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. For those of you who are raised in a Catholic background, did you hear what Peter just said to people? To nobodies. Let me read it again. Simon Peter, a slave an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those, he's writing, to those who are scattered, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. Can I just say this? Don't take the word of what somebody says about someone else when you can have their word for themselves. What does Peter say? You call him to the witness stand. Are you the head of the church? Were the keys given to you and let him speak from Scripture and defend himself and defend truth? Revelation 1.1, the revelation of Jesus Christ. This is the apostle John writing, which God gave to him, gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his apostle John. No, I'm his slave. I'm on the Isle of Patmos. I was trying to do right for God, and I got exiled. And I thought if I got saved, everything would be better. And I trusted in Jesus, and my whole life is falling apart. And what does John say? What does he owe a slave? He gave his life for me. You know who I am? I'm a servant. And this, this unveiling of Jesus is given to his servants. So our relation to him de- determines our mission. But when Jude says, you know what? I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. He's also saying, do you know who I belong to? I am not my own. I belong to him. It's not that you see, he tells me what to do and I do it. It's I am owned by him. So this message is not his own. He is not sitting somewhere in a think tank. What do I want to say to people that are living while I'm living? What do I think is important? That's not what, he says, understand, I'm a slave of Jesus, so I belong to him. He determines my mission, and he determines my message, and I'm about to give you the message that is his, inspired by the Holy Spirit. That that puts a new light on it, doesn't it? That, That makes me as a pastor, that should make us as believers say, well, if that's how he views his relation to Jesus, then maybe we need to pay attention to what he wrote. If it's from Jesus and, and we belong to Jesus, then this is probably pretty important, inspired by the Spirit and included in our Bibles. Now, how did he get to this position of, I'm owned by my brother? Well, you know, he grew up in Jesus' house, so he kind of was closer. He was closer to the finish line than the rest of us. No. Now, he was further away. Early on in life, his family, him, his brothers, it was marked by disbelief and rejection. That's how they viewed Jesus. John chapter 7, this is the background to Jesus' family growing up with Jesus. We talk about this quite often. Verse 1, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples, notice they don't say that we as disciples, they say that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no works, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. It sounds a little bit like the temptation of Satan in the, in the wilderness, doesn't it? Yeah, that's because that's who they're speaking on behalf of at this point. For even, John says, his brothers, for not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, my time has not yet come. But check this out, brothers. Your time is always here. Can you imagine being James? Jude, and walking out of the room after your brother just dropped that note on you? 
It's not my day to die, boys, but it might be yours. Have a good afternoon. <laughs> Who does he think he is? He's never made a mistake in our family, but he's never gotten in trouble. He's never offended our mom and dad. But come on. How did he make this transition? Do you understand what we rob from Christianity to erase that Jesus had brothers, sisters? Matthew chapter 12, verse 46 while he was still speaking, Jesus is speaking to the people. Behold, his, his mother, okay, this is his mom, Mary, his physical mom, and his brothers, his physical brothers, they stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. And now he's speaking spiritually. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my, and he's speaking spiritually here, my brother and sister and my mother. You see how he flattened and he took it, well, you know, we weren't raised in Jesus' house because then it would be so much closer if I was only raised in a Christian family. Well, that's wonderful. But that's no guarantee that your eyes are going to be open to the gospel. We pray that they are. So early on, Jude's life was marked like James, disbelief and rejection of Jesus. But after Jesus was raised from the dead and they saw him, their lives were marked by belief and by worship. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 14, this is after Jesus has ascended. We, we looked at that last Sunday. But in Acts 1.14, now they're waiting on Jesus. And all these... and. We're talking about the disciples and the apostles in the context there. With one accord, we're devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The family of Jesus was gathered, about 120 waiting for the coming of the Spirit. What happened to them? This is a supernatural change. That Jude's eyes were opened. Jude remained faithful. He wrote this message under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ. And he's saying, I'm his and he is mine. And he was faithful to the end. So Jude, we see, he was a servant of Jesus Christ. And Jude was also the brother of James. The brother of James. He's, uh, he's clarifying who's, who's writing this letter. You need authenticity. If we're going to listen to the teaching of this letter, we need to know that it's, it's genuine. Who you're saying? Who wrote this? Well, read it. And this would have been read. The church would have gathered. They would have said, we have a, a letter. And they would have unfolded the scroll. And they would have read this out in the hearing of the believers a servant, a slave of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. Oh, now I know which Jude we're talking about here. This is a mark of humility, loved ones. There are at least five men with the name uh, Judas or Jude in the New Testament. There's also a few options for the name James or Jacob. I would suggest that Jude's brother... James, that he's referring to, the brother of James, was the leader of the church at Jerusalem that you can read of in the book of Acts. James also penned the New Testament letter that bears his name, Hebrews James. The brothers are listed as part of Jesus' family in Matthew 13, 55. The crowd is asking the question, is, is not this the carpenter's son? Is Jesus not the carpenter? Isn't he Joseph's son? Is not his mother called Mary? And are not his brothers, and here we have the names, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas, Jude. Isn't this who? Okay, so at this point, when they're asking this question, don't we know this? Where is he getting in this authority? I thought we knew this little guy growing up. And I remember something about Joseph and Mary, and Joseph didn't put away Mary, and she was pregnant, and, and yeah, right, the Holy Spirit overshadowed her, Joseph, okay, whatever. What's going on in this family? 
We know this family. They've grown up with us in our community. We know them. Jesus had brothers who were married. Paul mentioned these individuals in 1 Corinthians 9 as evidence that those called to pastoral ministry should never be forbidden marriage. That is not from God to call any person to celibacy and say that it's mandated. How do you know that? Okay, 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5, Paul says this. Paul was single, okay? He, He wasn't married at this time. He may have been married before. We don't know. Perhaps his wife, when she lost the lifestyle of a Pharisee, a leading Pharisee, said, peace, I'm out. But we don't know. We don't have that record. And Paul says, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles, and listen now, and the brothers of the Lord, and Cephas, who's he talking about? The brothers of the Lord, James, Jude. And Paul is saying, don't I have the right to be married to a believing wife? Okay, we, side note, believers never have a right to just marry someone who is not a believer. We're forbidden that. We're not to be unequally yoked. Paul is highlighting that. Don't I have a right if someone, you know, a single woman loves God? Don't I have the right? But Paul deferred on that. He's like, do you know how hard my life is? How loving would that be for me to have a wife and her know I'm in harm's way all the time? What what prison is my husband in today? And where is he shipwrecked on which island today? So Paul says, you know what? I'm just a servant of Jesus, but that's not a command that I can put on other people. It's from God. Marriage is from God. And any institution or person who tries to forbid marriage from someone, they're going against God's creative order, sometimes in the name of God, which is more confusing and damning. Well, who likes to be the little brother or play the second fiddle or be the supporting actor or actress? When, J- when Jude says a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, that's what he's highlighting. He's not putting anything on his, do you know who I am? He's saying, let me tell you who I am. A slave of Jesus and James's little brother. You know, James, the leader of the church in Jerusalem. Doesn't it sound a little bit like John the Baptist when people come up to him and say, hey, hey, you know all your disciples, they're all leaking out the back door? Did you notice that? They're all going to follow Jesus? Does this offend you? And what's John's answer? No. Didn't I tell you there was one coming greater than me after me? He must, Jesus must increase, and I must decrease. Well, nothing to report here. Back to headquarters. That guy's humble. We're not getting any, you know, real savvy news here from John the Jealous. No. I told you he was coming. Do you listen to anything I say? He must increase. But that didn't remove the humanity of John when he was in prison facing his death where he would die, saying, "Um, guys, the ones that are left, could you go ask Jesus if he's the one or are we waiting on another? Is this really how it turns out that I'm in prison? I'm kind of waiting on the, remember the disciples last week? Lord, now time for the kingdom? Bring John back, Elijah? Come on, let's go. Oh, not yet. That's the near and far fulfillment of prophecy. So we can gain clarity and we can gain confidence when we see the example of of James. He was faithful and he was humble. Let's look at the second area from this introduction and that's Jude's emphasis. What does he emphasize? What does he promote? He's focused on our identity in Christ. Knowing who we are is the key to knowing what we are supposed to do. And so Jude emphasizes the identity of believers, of those who are in Christ. Are you in Christ this morning? 
Have you turned from your sin and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ? It's very different than trusting in my religious accomplishments, my religious resume, what I have done, or what I plan to do. Jude emphasizes the believer's identity in Christ. He said, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. It's very simple how he writes here, but make no mistake, these are mountains. These are truth bombs that he is delivering. He says, first of all, you have to know you're the called. If you're in Christ, you're the called. Kletos is, the, is an adjective. It's, re, it's related to the verb kaleo, to call out. It literally means, and it refers to the chosen, to the elect, that the doctrine of God's unconditional election, it's a precious promise. And that's what's communicated here. He's writing to believers who are about to go into the fray and the fight and the thick of things. Do you think the doctrine of election would unsettle them? When they're about to face an uncertain enemy, they have to be reminded, you didn't get into this on your own. He called you. You are his. In other words, he saved you, he keeps you, he will keep you, he will finish the work in you, and now there's God's sovereignty we looked at last week, and you have a responsibility, and you can stand firm knowing he is holding you, like a, like a parent. Whenever I was walking with uh, my, my daughters when they were little, I never walked with a 50-50 handhold. I walked with a 95-5 handhold, basically 100. I just needed their arm, their wrist. And if they let go or tried to get away, I, was, I had them in the grip, the vice, you know? Let me go, let me go. No, there's danger here. Hippopotamus is down there. I'm not letting you go. Are there really? No. Oh, my dad, I can't trust him. He lied. No hippopotamuses. Just that one at the zoo for a while. He just spent most of his time under the water, though. He didn't seem too scary. Make no mistake, he would be. The called. The salvation of sinners originates in the effectual call of God. This is from our statement of faith. It's online. It's given to every member when you come into membership. It's like a catechism. This is what we believe, and then there are the scriptures that, that support this, or where, where does this come from? We believe that all men are sinners and that salvation is holy of God's grace. See that? We believe that men are justified by grace through faith alone and are accounted righteousness before God through the merit of the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And there's the scriptures, Romans 5, 8, Ephesians 2, 8, 9, 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. Loved ones, this life-giving and life-changing call of God was what was displayed when Jesus stood beside the tomb of Lazarus and he said, roll away the stone. And they said, we shouldn't do this. And he said, did I not tell you I'm the resurrection and the life? Roll away the stone. It's okay. And when Jesus issues forth that command, Lazarus, come forth. Can you imagine being there that day, John 11? And Lazarus come walking out. Time's lunch. I'm hungry. Four days, haven't eaten. I know that's what he said. You take off his grave clothes and let him go. Go inspect this. You did what you can do, the human responsibility, move the stone, take the grave clothes off. I do what God does, and I speak, and life happens. And that's how we're saved, loved ones. It's not that Lazarus was in the tomb, and he began to twitch, you know, and he began to move. And Jesus saw the movement of Lazarus, and he said, ah, there's something there I can work with, and let me add to that. Is that how creation happened? That God out of eternity said, oh, I see a little spark happening. Let me jump in on this. He spoke and life happened. Creation happened. Why would we think they would be different for our salvation? No, 
Paul detailed this, Romans chapter 8, verse 28. He He gives the timeline. He gives the process of this. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are, here's the word, called according to his purpose. That's a specific group of people. Those are believers. They're called according to his purpose. Verse 29. Well, when did this call happen? For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers And those whom he predestined, okay, so it's in the mind of God, the will of God, the heart of God, that's where our salvation begins. Those he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he isn't going to stop. He also, and it's written in this way, glorified, past tense. Understand this. When you face whatever comes into your life this week, child of God, that there are no surprises to God. He's going to finish the work that he began in you. He started the process. He will finish the work. He doesn't get lazy. He doesn't become neglectful. He doesn't get tired, and he doesn't quit. I'll say amen to that, you know, because I I think I would probably give up on me, and he doesn't. So Peter writes, and he encourages believers, 1 Peter 2.9, and he says this, but you... Okay, so there's everybody, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. He called you for what purpose? So you could have your best life now. That's not what scripture says. Peter was crucified history says, upside down, after they put his wife to death in front of his eyes, trying to get him to recant. That doesn't sound like your best life now. But ask him today and his wife if they were, if, if they were right, if they were thankful that they trusted. And, and the words that Peter said to encourage his wife, remember, dear, our Lord, remember, dear, our Lord, he called you. So we're the called, and then he says this, you know your identity? Let me emphasize, you are those beloved in God the Father. That word, agapao, it's a deep level of affection and intimacy. The divine love of God, which is displayed in Jesus Christ, it's bestowed upon all who are called. His common grace His love is displayed for everyone that walks planet earth. We breathe his air. We receive of his rain. We share in sunshine. We see the beauty of his creation. But there's something different about those who are beloved, and it's the word in God the Father. Beloved. Beloved is a modifier of those who are called. If you're called, you're beloved. That word is modifying. Beloved is in the perfect tense. It's a set reality for a Christian. This is who you are. You are loved in God the Father. Now, there's a general love that God has for all human beings. We know this in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Okay, his love is displayed over and throughout the entire planet Earth. But there's a unique love, a specific aspect of this love, a redeeming quality of this love And John the Apostle writes in 1 John 3, I love these verses, and he narrows it down to those who are beloved in the Father. He says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us, the Father to us. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples? When you pray, our Father who art in heaven. How do we have a a right and a privilege to call him our Father in heaven? It's because of Jesus. See what kind of love the Father has given to us? That we should be called the children of God? We aren't owed this. We don't deserve this. And he says, and so we are. This is, this is it. We are loved. We're called. The reason why, now here's a different group of individuals, the world does not know us, is that it, didn't, it did not know him. And here he uses this word, beloved. We are God's children Now, and what will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, we shall be like him 
because we shall see him as he is. And this love is not a pampering love, quoting Tony Evans, it's a perfecting love. And everyone who thus hopes in him, something happens in our lives. We purify himself just as he is pure. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. That's the work of sanctification. That isn't anybody saying, I prayed a prayer. I'm going to heaven. Now, on with my life. I have my get out of hell card. I don't know. It's in my wallet somewhere, and I'll just show that to God. I I prayed at camp. I prayed at whatever. I'm fine. Leave me alone. No, 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 no. Everyone who has this hope purifies himself. Well, why? Why do you have to purify yourself? I thought you were sanctified and made holy. Yeah. Justified, just as if you've never sinned, just as if you've always obeyed, but I need to be sanctified. Remember Jesus washing the disciples' feet? You're you're still going to have thoughts that you shouldn't have. I'm going to still have attitudes that I shouldn't have. We're going to go through emotions that we shouldn't have. All of these things that we go through, say things, do things we shouldn't do, and we're going to need a constant, that's that's Luther's 95 thesis, number one, that Christians are constantly the confessing ones. And we have an advocate with God the Father. It's Jesus Christ, the righteous. So 1 John 4.10, in this is love. Not that we have loved God. Pastor, I don't know. I think somehow I have to have something to do with my salvation. Hey, take it up with John. Take it up with John. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Your salvation originated and is accomplished and will be completed in God. Now that ought to encourage you on days when you find yourself saying, can I really even be a Christian with that thought that I just experienced in traffic or in my family? Preach the gospel to your heart. Preach the gospel to your heart. What did you ever do to to be saved anyway, to impress God anyway? Nothing. It's his love. And when we are humbled by this love, this drives us, compels us, moves us to worship. Now we're saying, Jude, I'm a slave of Jesus. I'm a servant. I'm a servant of Jesus. I'm a brother of James. I'll play second fiddle. I don't mind. And he says we're kept. We're called We're beloved and we're kept for Jesus Christ. Kept for Jesus Christ. Think about this. You ever had a gift and you're waiting to give it to that loved one and you're holding on to it and you just keep that and you can't wait to give the gift to the loved one? Look at the the verbiage here. Look what's going on. Tereo is the word which means to keep, to observe, to protect. It's a word that it has to do with preservation. Kept, like beloved, is a modifying word, and it goes back to modifying called. If you're called, you're beloved. If you're called, you're kept. You're preserved. You're guarded. And this is summed up beautifully in Philippians 1.6. I love this scripture. Paul saying, I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Started with him, worked out in him, and completed in him. Amen? Amen. So that's his emphasis. Who are you in Christ? Called, beloved, kept. Now let's look at Jude's expectation. What have we been given in Christ? And we see this in verse 2. This is a little sneak peek to what he wants to communicate in this letter. This is what he wants for other believers. He's not writing for them to be impressed at him. He's writing for them to know and fall deeper in love with the God and Savior who loves and forgave them. Now, this is a similar customary greeting. If you look at the other Letters in the New Testament, most often Paul would write grace and and peace, grace and mercy. 
And Jude doesn't use the word grace here. Nevertheless, it's a very gracious desire that he has. He's actually giving what does grace provide? His expectation, what we've been given in Christ, is first of all, mercy. He says, may, may mercy, okay, this is his prayer for them. This is what he wants for them. You know, you can tell a lot by a person of what they want for other people around them. If they want other people to succeed around them, they want other people to be blessed. They rejoice when other people receive a promotion. They're able to be happy for the success of others instead of be jealous. You know, that was, that should have been mine. That should have been me. You know, they overlooked me. No, that's not Jude. You know, I'm the brother of Jesus. If you guys knew what you were doing, you know, you'd be more concerned. Where are the letters to me? No, that's not him at all. He has a letter for them, and he he loves them. And he says, you know what I want for you? I want mercy. I want God's mercy. Alejos is the word. It's it's compassion for the miserable. Remember the Good Samaritan we just went through? And the question was posed at the end, "Who who was the neighbor, Jesus said to the guy. And remember what he said. He didn't want to say the Samaritan. He said what the Samaritan did. And he said, I guess it was the one who showed mercy. The one who looked on the situation and said, this situation, someone is in need and I have the ability to help them, but it's going to cost me time. It's going to cost me my clothing. They didn't have a whole closet at home with more. It's going to cost me my beast. It's going to cost me resources at the end. And mercy rolled sleeves up and engaged with that person in need instead of walking by, the Lord bless thee, hope you're better later, I'm busy, gotta go. Thanks so much. You're so spiritual. You left me to die. The Samaritan showed him mercy. He had pity on him. But he just didn't feel bad for him. He engaged in his life. This isn't just giving someone homeless, there's $20. This is engaging in lives that are broken and messy. This isn't just doing something to ease our own conscience, to make us feel better about us. Mercy, loved ones, is not getting what we justly deserve, which is punishment for all our sins. God has shown me mercy. And I love what Scripture says is that God delights in showing mercies and that we who have been redeemed, we are actually vessels of mercy. You got any trophies at home? What do you do with trophies like 50, 60 years later? They're like in a box. Rodney's like, you throw them out. You pitch them, right? Do you understand what, what God is saying about believers? Do you know what you are? You aren't just dusty, worthless trophies of your second grade soccer team. Or, you know, I won the chess competition and there's my trophy. Wow, that's great, Grandpa. Wonderful. You're my grandpa. That's amazing. Yeah, there's more where that came from. God says, you know what you are? Let let, let Scripture tell it. Romans 9, 22. What if, okay, now God's sovereignty, Romans 9, 10, and 11, powerful chapters to get our minds wrapped around when Paul is saying, do you think that God has forgotten Israel? Oh, no, he's not forgotten Israel. He set Israel aside because he's grafting in Gentiles, and we have no business to be invited into this, into this whole line of redemption. That's what Peter was saying. You're, you weren't chosen, but you are chosen. You were once not a people. Now you are a people. You were once aliens far off, and he's brought you near by his love. And now he's making a people comprised of men and women and slave and free and black and white and all socioeconomic statuses in life. And you're all come Jew and Gentile, and you're all brought into this family of God. And God is saying, I reign over all the nations and look at the family that I love 
that belong to me and they look to me and I provide for them. And how is this possible? Jesus, the lamb was slain to settle their debt. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, if, th think about the question, if God is good, then why did that happen? That bad thing happened. If God is good, why 9-11? If God is good, where was he? Was he unable to help? Was he unwilling to help? Those are the questions that people wrestle with. And Paul is saying, what if? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath like Hitler, Mussolini, Stalin, Bin Laden, and he's put up with Brian, a rebel against God. Why would he do that? Not because he has to. Endured with much patience, vessels of wrath prepared for destruction. Why? Verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Before he ever created anything, his plan of redemption is so beautiful that Saul of Tarsus was gonna be there at the death of Stephen the martyr. And how would God do this? Where was God, Stephen's family could say? And he could have saved him. He could have rescued him. Jesus, if you would have been here, our brother wouldn't have died. Thought you loved him. Thought you loved us. You failed us. All that emotion. And John 11 is so instructive that Jesus doesn't return with vengeance on Martha and Mary, but instead he responds by weeping. Is he not worthy of our love and trust? Roll the stone away. Let me just give you a sneak peek of what's coming one day for all who are in me. Resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? So we have we been given mercy. And Jude says we've been given peace. This is very, uh, irene is the, is the Greek word. It's very closely connected to the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew word, shalom. That, that greeting of peace. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the Prince of Peace and he accomplished a, a work of atonement on the cross for you and for me. That word shalom, it's a Hebrew word for completeness, for wholeness. Everything is <sighs> right where it's supposed to be. You ever feel that when you, you finish cleaning or you organize your shop and you finally get... Everything right where it's supposed to be. How long does that last? <laughs> Who is in my kitchen? It doesn't go in that drawer. It goes in that. Who is in my shop? Who is in my garage? My piece is gone. It's out the window. And you know, no one ever admits to that in the house. Nobody ever. Oh, yeah, it was me. Nobody ever says that. No, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Well, there's nobody else that lives in our house. Usually it's me. I'll just be honest. How is it possible for have this, to have this peace? This peace with God. It's through Jesus Christ. This peace is God's peace. And it begins to characterize, because I have peace with God, now my relationships are characterized more and more by peace. I'm pursuing peace instead of, I just don't talk to him anymore. I, I got no room for them anymore. That's not the peace of God. God's peace begins to work out in our lives and we become people that are not just peace fakers, but peacemakers, not peace breakers. Oh, I'll just blow it up. I just say it like it is. I pride myself in that. I just tell people like it is. Okay, peace breaker. Speak the truth in love. Peacemakers. And he says love. Oh, you are, you've been given mercy, you've been given peace, and you've been given love. May mercy, peace, and love be, you know what I want? I want it multiplied for you. That's really good when you think in financial terms. 
You want your bank account, your retirement account to multiply, not just add. And we added $10, thanks. And we subtracted our fee, that was $20. We're going the wrong direction here. You wanna hear somebody say, we multiplied. Oh really, what'd you multiply that by? Square root, what? By the factor, squared? How did you multiply it? He says, I want these, these from God, mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied for you. John focused on this. He's, he, John the apostle became the apostle of love. He said, God is love. C.H. Dodd, he says this, and listen to this quote. It's gonna come on the screen. To say God is love implies that all his activity is loving activity. If he creates, he creates in love. If he rules, he rules in love. If he judges, he judges in love. That's what it means, God is love. And Jesus prayed, acknowledged the truth that as the Father loved Christ, so also he loves us. John 17, 23, look at this scripture. How much am I loved? Come on, Jude, tell me. Okay, if you're in Christ, listen to what Jesus prayed. I, Jesus is saying, I in them, and to the Father, you and me, that they, believers, disciples, Christians, may become perfectly one, why? So that the world may know that you sent me and love them, read it with me, even as you loved me. How much does God love you if you are in Christ? As, this is Jesus even, Father, as you have loved me. That's how. That's how much you are loved. That's why this week we put the sign up at our property. For everybody who comes on our property, play soccer, whatever. You, maybe you saw the video on Facebook. When they are playing soccer, when they leave our property, we had a, a guy stop by yesterday, just a, a neighbor on a shop, stop by and talk to us. When he leaves, what do we want people to know? We're not making this up, and it's not just some new phrase, you are loved. You are loved. Who loves me? That's the question. Well, where can I find out who loves me? I guess it's that church. Go to that website. Go up the street, or we'll be there soon as we possibly can, on that corner, saying to a world, God is love, and he sent his son demonstrating you are loved. This intro from Jude, powerful. His example, faithfulness and humility. His emphasis, our identity in Christ. And his expectation, you realize what we've been given in Christ? Mercy, peace, and love multiplied, multiplied, multiplied. Oh, God has been so good to us. Some questions for us, and we'll unpack some of these in our small group. What does Jude's self-description as Jesus' servant Jesus' slave, tell us about him. What does that tell us about Jude? We want to think about that. How is that relevant to us as Christians today? How, you, how have you received mercy and peace from the Lord? I want you to think about that. How have I received mercy? How, let me pay attention. To this. How has the Lord shown me mercy? How has he shown me peace? How have I received that? And lastly, what's my next step in bringing the love of Christ to others? How will God use me to bring the love of Christ. Maybe that step is you need to receive the love of Christ today. Let's stand together. Father in heaven, thank you for your love. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for the family that grew up with him and, and didn't really like him. And yet you changed Jude's heart and James's heart. And they went from being against Jesus to in love with Jesus and devoted to Jesus. And Father, I pray that if anybody is hearing today, if they're listening today and they've never come into a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, that today is the day where they surrender their heart and life to you, Lord, just like Jude had to do.
They have to admit, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell. I don't deserve God's mercy. But is there room in this family for me? And we can boldly and quickly say, yes, there is. For anyone who turns and trusts in Jesus, there's room at the cross for you. And so, Father, thank you for your love. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forevermore. Thank you again for listening to Teaching from the Word at Grace Community Church. We are located in Richmond, Michigan. You can find us online at mygracechurch.com. Please subscribe and follow us at My Grace Church. It would be greatly appreciated if you would take a moment to rate, like, and share this message. We want you to always remember that you are loved.